Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley, you're a lovely history friend and you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. It is important to emphasise that a project the size of the Versailles Anniversary Project takes a lot of time, a lot of attention to detail, a lot of organisation, a lot of research, all that lovely stuff. It's something which I really enjoy doing, the whole podcasting process, and since I have recently hired an editor, my sister Sarah, to actually get all that audio stuff done and it means I don't want to edit the episodes anymore which is absolutely fabulous I can focus on the things that I really super care about which is actually talking to you guys like this and researching history and getting closer to the people that actually well made the history happen a century ago my point is I'm able to look into events like this and all that detail and I'm able to do things like hiring my sister, because this is a podcast that you guys support so super well, and you support it by going over on Patreon and giving a little bit every month, and getting a lot old bit, lot bit, large bit, I don't know, you get a lot every month back in return. Which takes the following form of $1 a month for the 10-part series of Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, and also those 30 Years War podcast episodes once that eventually starts in autumn, along with the scripts to match. $2 a month gets you the Versailles Anniversary Project, complete with the script, ad-free episodes, all that lovely kind of thing. 
And then $5 a month gets you that, of course, as well, but also an hour of extra content every month, just in case you weren't sick of me yet, complete with the scripts for that as well. $6 a month gets you the delegation game, and all that lovely extra content besides. From there upwards, you guys get that content plus more in spades, everything from a say in what we do in this podcast to merchandise delivered straight to your door after a certain period of time pledging. The point is, if you wanted to give money to this show, if you wanted to show your love for history and for when diplomacy fails, and maybe just for Zach Twomley too, then I can guarantee that you won't be disappointed with what you get back in return. We're not looking for charity here when diplomacy fails, we are looking for a sustainable way to keep this podcast afloat, and by giving a little bit of money every month, you guys are making that happen. You guys have answered the call more than I could ever have expected possible, and I cannot thank you enough for this. It's because of you guys that this podcast is mostly my job, and I'm able to go into such depth and detail like this. And I know that you love it because you keep on downloading. So that's how I know I'm doing this correctly. We've got a great episode in store for you today. And just like every other episode that's released, it's made possible. It's long and it's detailed and it's exactly what you'd come to expect from Zach Twomley and When Diplomacy Fails because of your guys' support. So without any further ado, I'd like to say enjoy. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 44. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 44. Last time we looked at the adventures of the Fry Corps, that destructive and vengeful organisation of embittered former soldiers which rampaged through the Baltic states. The Fry Corps marched with the blessing of the Allies, originally, we learned, because it was the Allies' desire to see the Germans liberate the Baltic from the Bolsheviks, who had invaded the region in the first few weeks of 1919. 
In the back and forth which followed, the Bolsheviks would be expelled. The Freikorps would take root, but they refused to behave or stand down. Instead, they initiated a campaign of bloody violence and retribution as the Baltics groaned under the strain. The Freikorps, we learned, would not be expelled from the Baltic until late 1919, and many would join with the White Russians against the Bolsheviks in the ongoing Russian Civil War. But what of that Russian Civil War? Well, it's a topic we've mostly skirted around, as we noted numerous occasions where the Allies referred to the unsolvable Russian problem and debated on the next steps to take. To properly grasp how disruptive the Russian Civil War was in Allied minds, to understand what Allied soldiers were doing there, and to appreciate the aims and vision of William Bullitt when he set off on the 8th of March 1919 for his fact-finding mission to Russia, it's necessary to delve at least a little bit into the Russian situation by spring 1919, so that's what we're going to do here. It's quite a chunky episode, unsurprisingly, so I hope you're ready to listen, as I take you not to the Russian Civil War itself, but to the very first days of the Paris Peace Conference, and consequently, the very first occasion when an Allied leader recommended immediate action be taken against the Bolsheviks. Let's get into it. The meeting of the Supreme War Council on the 12th of January 1919 was full to the brim with significance. Here was the first time that the Allied leaders had gathered together to talk and plan in the same room. Here was the first real occasion to show the world what they intended to achieve, how they intended to make the Great War worth it, and what kind of new world order they envisioned to take root. There would indeed be time for all that high-minded activism, but it is incredibly significant that on the same day that the world appeared to convene at Paris, many of these leaders decided that the time was right to engage in what amounted to a massive escalation of the situation in Russia. By now it was 14 months since the Bolsheviks had seized power in Russia, put forward Lenin as their leader, and removed the Russian colossus from the war. That event created a sense of overwhelming urgency in the Allied camp, and the reaction of the Allies to the removal of Russia and the subsequent eruption of the Russian Civil War helps to explain why Marshal Ferdinand Foch was able to argue for the destruction of the Bolsheviks, and why both Winston Churchill and George Clemenceau felt compelled to agree with him. Churchill insisted that a plan be drawn up which would detail how a comprehensive military campaign would be launched against the Bolsheviks, while Clemenceau agreed, as the minutes for that day record that Clemenceau agreed with all that Mr. Churchill had said, and he attached great importance to the creation of a proposed military council. He did not favour the policy of leaving Russia to her own devices. He favoured the policy of encirclement, the policy of setting up a barrier around Russia. He did not court defeat in Russia, after having been victorious on the Rhine. Considering this enthusiasm for military action in Russia, the American president and the British prime minister placed themselves firmly in the opposite camp. Even though Winston Churchill was a member of the British cabinet, the Prime Minister still opposed his moves. This was not out of Woodrow Wilson's love for the Bolsheviks. The poison of Bolshevism, as Wilson termed it, was readily accepted by many people, not because it was a military threat, but because it is a protest against the way in which the world has worked. Therefore, the best way to fix Bolshevism was by fixing this world and replacing it with a new, better one. It was the business of the Paris Peace Conference to fight for such a new world, and even if Wilson subsequently had great difficulty defining what all of it meant, he was clear on the pointlessness of a military venture into Russia, adding, 
There was great doubt in my mind as to whether Bolshevism could be checked by arms, and therefore it seems to me unwise to take action in a military form before the powers were agreed upon a course of action for checking Bolshevism as a social and political danger. Woodrow Wilson was not the only figure convinced that Russia's salvation lay in the creation of a new world order. This, of course, was a euphemism for the League of Nations. David Lloyd George was adamant that military intervention in Russia wouldn't solve anything and would only exacerbate the terrible situation. Furthermore, Lloyd George believed that the League would save Russia from itself by making the world a better place and facilitating the transformation of conditions such as were seen in Russia at the time. People wouldn't want Bolshevism anymore. In a memo released in late March 1919, Lloyd George demonstrated that he had not lost heart in the promise of the League of Nations to fix such problems when he noted, The whole of Europe is filled with the spirit of revolution. There is a deep sense not only of discontent, but of anger and revolt amongst the workmen against pre-war conditions. The whole existing order, in its political, social and economic aspects, is questioned by the masses of the populations from one end of Europe to the other. There is a danger that we may throw the masses of the population throughout Europe into the arms of the extremists, whose only idea for regenerating mankind is to destroy utterly the whole fabric of society. These men have triumphed in Russia. If we are to offer Europe an alternative to Bolshevism, we must make the League of Nations into something which will be both a safeguard to those nations who are prepared for fair dealing with their neighbours and a menace to those who would trespass upon the rights of their neighbours, whether they are imperialist empires or imperialist Bolsheviks. An essential element, therefore, in the peace settlement is the constitution of the League of Nations as the effective guardian of international right and international liberty throughout the world. We can discern the creation of two trains of thought, then, by spring 1919. In the minds of Clemenceau, Churchill and Marshal Ferdinand Foch, this train involved choo-chewing their way into Russia with a large army and destroying the Bolsheviks, using whatever auxiliaries, be they Poles, Greeks or even Germans, in order to do it. If you remember our massive episode looking at the last two weeks of February, then you may remember Foch's lengthy diatribe regarding the plan for dealing with Russia. We don't need to quote it in full, but they demonstrate that Foch clung to this perspective right till the end, and that he never stopped believing that military intervention was the best way to defeat the Russians. On the other hand, in the minds of Wilson and Lloyd George, their train would choo-choo through the League of Nations, and it would not merely protect those states under threat from the Bolsheviks, it would also alleviate the terrible social and economic conditions which allowed Bolshevism to flourish. One camp thus wanted to ignore the League altogether and initiate a military campaign independent of such organisations, compiled of a polyglot army and driven by the mutual interest in destroying Bolshevism for good. The other camp wanted to use the League as its silver bullet to kill Bolshevism, essentially with kindness, to refrain from engaging in any military campaign, but to use the mechanisms and resources at its disposal to ease the pain of Russia by delivering supplies of food and providing assurances, while also containing the spread of Bolshevism with a defensive belt of nations, the cordon sanitaire. Of course, an undeniable fact of the day in spring 1919 was that military intervention by the Allies had already taken place in Russia, and it had been as haphazard, piecemeal and badly planned as had so many other acts in the war. And the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War was the product of the war. It's a bit complicated, but 
Basically, it had begun as a scheme for propping up the Russians, protecting the Allied investments and avoiding the nightmarish scenario where Germany emerged supreme on the continent. By landing soldiers and providing equipment, especially in Siberia, it was imagined that the Allies could prevent the Russian house from collapsing, even after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk had been signed. It was therefore bizarre that Allied leaders quibbled over their policy in Russia, because as far as the Bolsheviks were concerned, the imperialists had already made their choice. Following the intervention by the Allies to revive the Russian colossus, and the resulting failure to revive this Russian colossus against Germany, and then following the collapse of Germany and the signing of the armistice, the presence of these Allied soldiers in portions of Russia now presented a tremendous opportunity. The manpower was present, and the Bolsheviks were only a new regime. Now was as good a time as any to crush Lenin's legions and re-establish, not the Tsardom, but the provisional Republican government headed by Alexander Kerensky. In the second half of 1918, the Allies struggled in their turn with this question of acting against the Bolsheviks now that the war was won. It is worth examining as briefly as possible the struggles which each power faced in this regard, as well as the wider strategic concerns felt by Allied command with regards to Russia as a whole. I will now present you with the Speedrunner's Guide to Allied Intervention in the Russian Civil War. We begin with the most controversial figure in the Russian Civil War equation, that being Woodrow Wilson. I hold it as a fundamental principle, Wilson declared in January 1915, that every people has the right to determine its own form of government. While addressing a crowd in Indianapolis, Wilson insisted that it was none of his business and none of their business how the people of Mexico chose their leaders. And, so far as my influence goes, Wilson vowed, nobody shall interfere with them. As the historian David Fogelsong has pointed out, there was something ironic in the President's statement to the effect that people must be left to their own devices when he presided over the most interventionist policy in American history. Not merely intervention in the Great War, of course, but also interventions which have been long forgotten help to underline this point. As Fogelsong wrote, No president has spoken more passionately and eloquently about the right of self-determination, yet no president has intervened more often in foreign countries. Wilson directed the Navy to seize Veracruz in 1914, ordered US forces to occupy Haiti in 1915, commanded Marines to pacify the Dominican Republic in 1916, sent soldiers deep into Mexico in the same year, and dispatched military expeditions to Vladivostok and Archangel in 1918. Less blatantly, Wilson used diplomatic pressure, economic sanctions, arms embargoes and arms shipments to influence political developments from Central America to Siberia and from the Caribbean to the Baltic. It would be easy to see Woodrow Wilson's decision to send troops to Russia in July 1918 as an example of his inability to just keep his nose out of the business of other countries. But while it would be easy, it would also be incorrect. Wilson didn't act in Russia in pursuit of a consistent policy, where initially the aim had been to protect the Russian front and guard Allied supplies from falling into the hands of the Germans, upon the surrender of Germany a few months later, everything changed. Russia had, of course, lost its strategic importance for the Allied war effort, since there was no Allied war effort, and while it could not be guaranteed that the war would not resume in the future, one could ask with some justification why the Allies didn't simply evacuate their soldiers from Russia's disparate corners now that the original aim for propping up Russia against the Germans was obsolete. And it must be emphasised that the Allied intervention in Russia had taken place very much in the context of the Great War, 
We should not view this Allied intervention or even the Bolshevik government as issues separate from the ongoing Great War or its Paris Peace Conference. The Allied intervention was a product of the war just as surely as were the Bolsheviks themselves. Had the Tsar's regime not banged its head against the wall for more than three years, it's highly unlikely that such revolutionaries would ever have seen the light of day, literally, since many of them would have been imprisoned. When Woodrow Wilson made his 14 points in January 1918, no American soldiers were present in Russia. So Wilson felt no embarrassment when issuing point number 6, which called for the evacuation from Russia of all foreign soldiers. At that time, Wilson believed that foreign armies, in particular the Japanese, who seemed best positioned to take advantage of Russian disunity in the East, were preventing Russians from determining their own future, and that until foreign armies left Russia, the Russians would never be able to decide how they wished to be ruled. Wilson, of course, wished that when selecting their rulers, Russians would not select the Bolsheviks. He failed to appreciate, as did so many of his contemporaries, what the situation was actually like in Russia, and he did genuinely agonise over the best method for sorting out Russia's problem, confessing as much to House on the eve of deciding upon intervention in July 1918. I have been sweating blood over the question of what is right and feasible to do in Russia. It goes to pieces like quicksilver under my touch. In fairness to Wilson, the Russian situation in 1918 was endlessly confusing. Matters had come to a head for the Allies in March 1918 with the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on the 2nd of that month. With that treaty signed and Germany secure in its east, the fear had become not only one of facing a renewed German tide, which was then already on the move, but also in protecting what valuable goods the Allies had actually sent through the Siberian and Crimean ports and guarding the additionally valuable resources like wheat and oil which could be harvested. By guarding these, the Allies intended to prevent them falling into German hands. It was a genuine fear in Allied circles that Germany would gain a second wind economically by just sucking the juice out of Russia. She already had the manpower advantage, but with Russia's resource wealth, the German shortages could be made up for in double time, just as her soldiers were storming over the Western Front. So ingrained was this idea that even a year later, when Allied soldiers were plainly no longer guarding these goods from the Germans, The fear which did the rounds was that if the Allied soldiers left now, the unstable Russia would fall helplessly into the German sphere of influence and Berlin would continue to suck Russia dry for its gain. During this time of uncertainty, the Japanese moved first and seized Vladivostok before moving steadily westwards. There was a legitimate danger that the Germans would take advantage of the Russian collapse by demanding more and more at the peace table, and thanks to the development of the Trans-Siberian Railway, the Germans would have a solid artery through which Russian produce would be delivered. However, a further complication with this railway was felt by mid-1918 as well. The appearance along much of the length of this railway of the Czechoslovak Legion. These were former prisoners of war turned anti-Bolshevik flying columns, and they occupied the major stations along the Trans-Siberian route, and, in an incredible coup, they even managed to capture the gold reserves of the old Tsarist regime. With these invaluable pawns in such unlikely hands, the Czechs gained not only fame and sympathy in the West, as we have seen when they tried to harness it for the establishment of a Czechoslovak state, but the Czechs also acquired a unique strategic advantage in the Russian Civil War, which was to the benefit of the intervening allies. 
The Japanese had been in place since late 1917, and when the British arrived in the spring of 1918, shortly after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk had been signed, it was clear that a new front, quietly launched though it had been, had nonetheless been launched in the Great War. In the south of Russia was a Ukrainian front, under the command of General Anton Denikin, and in the north in Siberia, based at Omsk, was the Siberian front. In between, the Allies had seized critically important port cities like Murmansk and Archangel, and a British-Canadian force had been established in the Caucasus. The story of the Russian Civil War thus consisted of these separate fronts interacting, or not interacting with one another, while the Bolsheviks worked to consolidate their hold in the centre. The Bolsheviks were at a disadvantage in that the world was essentially hostile to them, and the Bolsheviks were also a relative minority within the wider country. However, that was where the disadvantages for the Bolsheviks ended. They possessed a considerable strategic advantage, in that the Bolsheviks occupied the centre of the Russian country and held the most important cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg and Smolensk. They also possessed a unity of vision and purpose under Lenin, unlike the Whites, who were a loose conglomeration of factions and egos rather than a single party. The Bolsheviks had an additional advantage which was becoming still more potent the longer the Allies remained in the country. Propaganda. The rhetoric and grandstanding of the Bolsheviks would be parroted over the subsequent years by Soviet chairmen as they consolidated their regime. But it was always the capitalist, imperialist West which was the target of Bolshevik attacks. Where during Stalin's time these points rarely hit home in terms of facts, Lenin's regime could quite reasonably point to the presence of Allied forces in Russian territory as proof of the imperialist conspiracy to never leave Russia alone and to force them to cleave to capitalism and all of its ills. The Allies, mostly Lloyd George it seemed, noted the potency and relevance of this message from the Bolsheviks as well as its usefulness for Lenin's regime. The Allies had perpetuated the capitalist Great War and now they were returning to avenge themselves upon the Russians who would attempt to escape its final furies. By late 1918, Lloyd George was warning his cabinet that they would spread Bolshevism simply by trying to suppress it. It was better to let it collapse by itself, and it surely would collapse since such a cannibalistic ideology was unsustainable in the medium or even short term. Yet still, it seemed that in spite of Lloyd George's warnings and Woodrow Wilson's ideological window dressing, the Allies could not bring themselves to genuinely leave Russia alone. By late 1918, some 180,000 Allied soldiers were stationed in Russia, and every single one of them longed to come home, and for the war to be over, for them, just as it had been over for their peers in the West. Perhaps no power failed more spectacularly to achieve its ends in Russia than the French, a fact which is somewhat ironic, considering how enthusiastically Marshal Foch and Georges Clemenceau pushed for intervention. Under an agreement with the British, France was supposed to be in charge of the Ukrainian and Crimean fronts, while Britain was supposed to be in charge of the Caucasus and Central Asia. Yet, from an early stage, a French commander in the Crimea complained bitterly that I do not have enough forces to settle into this country, all the more so, since it would not appeal to our men to experience Russia in winter when all their comrades are resting. To the misfortune of this commander and his men, the French government back in Paris ignored these warnings, which led to scenes of desperation and panic once the combined effects of enemy numbers and the elements became too much. By April 1919, the French and some auxiliary forces had fled from Ukraine and the Crimea, in the latter case withdrawing with some 40,000 Russians 
who did not wish to face the Bolshevik music, including the mother of the late Tsar. In May 1919, the French Black Sea Fleet mutinied and it became increasingly impossible for the French to have any impact upon the Russian Civil War. Almost as if to compensate for these shortcomings, the French government became increasingly hostile and belligerent towards the Bolsheviks. We may recall Foch arguing for a multinational force to be led into Russia on the 25th of February, and this was not the last time Foch would take this view, notwithstanding the complete inability of his country to carry the policy out. Since the Allied interventions in Russia were evidently not ridding the world of Bolshevism and were leading instead to rampant discontent among the Allied soldiers forced to carry this burden when they wanted to return home, Allied leaders would surely have to develop a plan B. In the minds of Lloyd George and Wilson, as we saw, this plan B took the form of the League of Nations. The League would guard against Bolshevik expansion while also alleviating the shortages and shortcomings of the international order and under these improved circumstances the Russian people would feel less obliged to rely upon the Bolsheviks, who would then be alienated and removed. In this way, this very vague and naive way, the two Allied leaders imagined the League would sort out Bolshevism for them and it would not cost them the same expenses as a straightforward invasion of the Bolshevik strongholds, which nobody wanted to initiate. However, we would probably not be surprised to learn that the Bolsheviks viewed the League with as much scorn and suspicion as they viewed the more honest Allied military expeditions. Both, in the Bolshevik mind, were policies of the same capitalist system which worked towards communism's destruction. Gathering for the first Communist International Congress, or Common Turn, between the 2nd to the 6th of March 1919, it was loudly announced by the Bolsheviks, who dominated the gathering, that In Paris, the imperialist extortioners are trying to create their own black international, the so-called League of Nations. Conscious workers throughout the world know perfectly well that the so-called League of Nations is in fact a league of bourgeois robbers for the oppression of nations, for the division and enslavement of workers, for strangling the proletarian revolution. The gigantic pace of the world revolution is constantly presenting new problems, and the danger is that this revolution may be throttled by the alliance of capitalist states, which are banding together against the revolution under the hypocritical banner of the League of Nations. This compels us to take the initiative in placing, on the order of the day, the convening of an international congress of revolutionary proletarian parties. The League of Nations, no matter how it is organised on paper, nevertheless will only play the role of a holy alliance of capitalists, the suppression of the workers' revolution. The revolutionary proletariat of every country in the world must conduct an unyielding struggle against the ideals of Wilson's League of Nations and protest against the admission into this league of robbery, exploitation and imperialist counter-revolution. This was by no means the end of a torrent of venom which the Bolsheviks poured onto the League. Lenin singled out the League as something which should never be accepted and something which true Bolsheviks would never compromise with, saying... It is important to single out those questions which manifest the principal type of impermissible, treacherous compromises, and to exert all efforts to explain them and combat them. After the war, the defence of the robber League of Nations became one of the principal manifestations of those impermissible and treacherous compromises, the sum total of which constituted the opportunism that is fatal to the proletarian revolution and its cause. The financial oligarchy of the leading capitalist countries organised an international joint stock company under the title League of Nations, which on the one hand must divide among them plundered riches, and on the other hand guarantee with its high authority the payment of interest and the payment of war debts. 
There was evidently no love lost between the Bolsheviks and the West, and Lenin's regime had clearly developed to despise the exact kind of high-minded international moralism which Wilson so passionately advocated. Interestingly, Wilson had desired the creation of a democratic Republican Russia to emerge from the ashes of Tsarism, and was perfectly willing to sacrifice the independence of the Ukraine and the Baltic states for the sake of that regime's empowerment, but only on the condition that this iteration of Russia was a genuinely democratic, republican one. Wilson was also in the majority camp, which wished to see this good Russia take its seat at the great power table when the league was open for business. Believing that this would accelerate the whole process of improving Russia and making the Bolsheviks obsolete. The vociferous hatred which the Bolsheviks felt for the League, though, and the failure of the democratic Republican Russia to actually emerge, left the Allies unable to find a solution. In the end, the Allies essentially went for Plan C, which amounted to France's cordon sanitaire plan of surrounding the Bolsheviks with strong neighbours like Poland and the Czechs. Not only did this weak policy mean the abandonment of the Whites to their fate, it also meant that the intervention there had been a military defeat and a massive waste of time, lives and resources which the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Austin Chamberlain, believed had cost £100 million by its end. To some degree, it may surprise us that the three major Allied powers, with additional military help from Japan, Italy and Canada, were unable in the end to defeat the Bolsheviks. In a constantly changing world, it should come as a surprise that the newly established Bolsheviks were able to hold on in the end. As the historian I. Moffat noted in his book on the Allied intervention in Russia, the reasons for the Bolshevik survival can be explained not only by the Bolshevik unity of purpose and fanaticism, but also by other, less exciting factors. From the perspective of almost a century hence, it is difficult to understand how the Allies' Russian intervention of 1918-20 could end in such a tragic way. The experiences of alliances and coalitions that span those of the Second World War and the existence of the long-enduring alliance structures of NATO show that international alliances do work. While not without their own difficulties, they have functioned with far more success and much less obvious chaos than the Allied intervention experienced. But the decision-makers of this earlier period had no such precedence to go by nor could they be instructed by the collective historical experience available to us. Moreover, they had just fought through four years of mutual slaughter and national exhaustion. During that conflict, we know that they did not resolve their alliance cooperation quickly, or easily, or arguably, even adequately. In this situation, then, one can understand how the Russian involvement developed into the chaotic diplomacy and failure that it did. The Allied intervention demonstrates what can happen when adequate thought and the collective spirit of cooperation is lacking, especially when decisions are made based on personal beliefs and goals, while suffering from inadequate, incorrect, or just plain substandard planning. It should also be emphasised that the two most important anti-Bolshevik white forces in the Civil War were Alexander Kolchak in Siberia and Anton Denikin in Ukraine, and neither man could stand the other. The relationship of Kolchak and Denikin was emblematic of the problems which the white faction as a whole suffered from, because the group of the whites was a concoction of so many opinions and aims, it was inevitable that they would fail to coexist. The personalities of Kolchak and Denikin were too strong individually to facilitate cooperation, but this did not prevent the Allies from trying. The most notable effort in this direction was in the event of Principo, 
the proposed conference of Russia's leading lights, which would take place on the largest of the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara. Pringapo, as the largest of these islands, had been a popular picnic spot for residents of Constantinople, who lived nearby. Now it was to serve as the best hope for arriving at a peaceful solution in Russia. It was with heavy encouragement from Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson that the conference was extended to the Bolsheviks, but for the sake of compromise, the conference was hosted on that remote island rather than the French capital, where the poison of Bolshevism might infect the Europeans that resided there. The Supreme Council communicated this vision on the 22nd of January 1919, proclaiming, The single object the representatives of the associated powers have in mind in their discussions of the course they should pursue with regard to Russia has been to help the Russian people, not to hinder them or to interfere in any matter with their right to settle their own affairs in their own way. They regard the Russian people as their friends, not their enemies, and are willing to help them in any way they are willing to be helped. It is clear to them that the troubles and distrust of the Russian people will steadily increase. Hunger and privation of every kind become more and more acute, more and more widespread, and more and more impossible to relieve, unless order is restored and normal conditions of labour, trade and transportation are once more created, and they are seeking some way in which to assist the Russian people to establish order. The Allies recognise the absolute right of the Russian people to direct their own affairs, without dictation or direction of any kind from outside. They do not wish to exploit or make use of Russia in any way. They recognise the revolution without reservation and will in no way or in any circumstance aid or give countenance to any attempt at a counter-revolution. In this spirit and with this purpose, they have taken the following action. They invite every organised group that is now exercising or attempting to exercise political authority or military control anywhere in Siberia or within the boundaries of European Russia, as they stood before the war just concluded, except in Finland, to send representatives, not exceeding three representatives for each group, to the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara. These representatives are invited to confer with the representatives of the associated powers in the freest and frankest way, with a view to ascertaining the wishes of all sections of the Russian people, and bringing about, if possible, some understanding and agreement, by which Russia may work out her own purposes, and happy cooperative relations be established between her people and the other peoples of the world. A prompt reply to this invitation is requested. Every facility for the journey of the representatives, including transportation across the Black Sea, will be given by the Allies, and all the parties concerned are expected to give the same facilities. The representatives will be expected at the place appointed, the Prince's Islands, Sea of Marmara, by the 15th of February, 1919. We might expect the Bolsheviks to respond with scorn and hostility, but we may be surprised to note similar noises coming from the other factions within Russia, many of whom lived in exile in France at the same time. Nikolai Tchaikovsky was the leftist revolutionary, but still anti-Bolshevik leader, of the Government of the North, based in the city of Archangel, and he issued a stinging rebuke of the idea that all the parties of Russia would somehow gather together and talk as though a solution were actually possible. Tchaikovsky outlined the grimly uncompromising options available to Russians everywhere when he noted The suggestion that we other Russians should enter into negotiations for an accommodation with the Bolsheviks is impracticable because we have no common ground with them. They deny every democratic principle that we affirm, fundamentally the liberty of the subject. There is only one settlement possible between us. Either we prevail over them or they prevail over us. The policy of the conference is not only useless, 
is not only impracticable, but it is also humiliating to the representatives of Russia. We cannot enter into discussions with criminals and outrage mongers. To do so would be to recognise Bolshevism as a party, or to recognise crime as a normal political weapon, and to tolerate the loosening of the foundation of democracy. These Russian elements needn't have worried, because the only powers to respond positively to the Allied message were the Latvians and Estonians, and even then this was with the caveat that they were coming to demonstrate their country's independence from Russia, and they were not coming as a Russian party, even though they had been invited to stand as one. On the 15th of February, the day when the conference was supposed to be held, we find the Supreme War Council instead shorn of its most important members and veering towards the extreme end of this policy, thanks in large part to Winston Churchill, the Secretary for War at the time, who argued for the immediate setting up of an Allied Council for Russian Affairs, with political, economic and military sessions, with executive powers within limits to be laid down by the present conference. Churchill wanted the military plank of this Allied Council to be set up ASAP to draw up a plan for concerted action against the Bolsheviks. Then, Churchill insisted, if the Prinkipo proposal gave no results, the Supreme War Council would be in possession of a definite war scheme, together with an appreciation of the situation and an estimate of the chances of being able to carry through to success the suggested plan. The Supreme War Council could then make their choice, either to act or to withdraw their troops and leave everyone in Russia to stew in their own juice. At this point, Clemenceau, House and Sonino all weighed in in their turn insisting that they agreed with Churchill's forward approach and that they had never really believed in the policy advocated by the Prime Minister or President. As the historian Donald Hankey Riley noted, they were all very brave and downright in the absence of David Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson. Indeed, it was the President and the Prime Minister who did more than any other figures to shape the outcome of the Allied interventions in Russia. Both men have been examined by historians in the context of the Russian Civil War. But as is usually the case, Wilson has suffered more wounds by the historian's pen in this theatre. According to Moffat, though, this by no means absolves Lloyd George from his responsibility for hampering the Allied chances of success. Lloyd George was responsible for holding the Allies back, Moffat says, because the Prime Minister at no point believed that the British people would tolerate additional war in the name of Russian freedom. As Moffat wrote, Ever the pragmatist, Lloyd George's greatest fear was unrest among the British population. Military intervention in Russia, in the view of the Labour Party and articulated by the Trades Union Congress, was cause for a general strike. For this reason, Lloyd George could not risk openly supporting a full-scale intervention against the Bolsheviks. He maintained this stance despite overt pressure from Winston Churchill, the one man who constantly pushed for a military solution to the Russian problem. To add to the chaotic nature of British politics was the problem that Lloyd George never quite said no and never quite said yes, perhaps to cause delay in making any decision, thereby gaining time. But whatever the case, such overt inaction meant that others, like Churchill, took action and were difficult to control. Nonetheless, it was Lloyd George's actions and inactions that prevented adequate British support for the anti-Bolsheviks and together with President Wilson ensured the failure of the intervention and the others acted as they saw fit in the chaos created. But when I looked at the fact that neither Wilson nor Lloyd George were happy about intervening in Russia, and did it largely for wartime reasons to protect their Russian investments from the Germans, I kept returning to that burning question, 
The war was over in November 1918, so what were they all still doing there? The British and American forces which were maintained in mostly Siberia and Caucasia were strong enough to defend against incursions from the Bolsheviks, but they were not strong enough to engage in any proper military campaigns. Thus, we should bear in mind that when Churchill talked about military intervention, or some kind of scheme to make it possible, what he meant was investing additional resources in the pre-existing Allied presence so that a campaign would be possible. But back to that question of why the British and Americans didn't leave, especially when the French did in April 1919 as we saw, and the answers in both their cases have to do with political pragmatism, and in Woodrow Wilson's case, something akin to realpolitik. This was the perspective furthered by George Schild in his book Examining American Intervention, and Schild noted, The hotly contested question among Western historians of whether Wilson intervened in Russia to defeat the Bolsheviks, to help the liberals, or keep the Germans and or the Japanese out of the country is only of secondary importance. More important for the understanding of Wilson's policy is that for ideological reasons he did not consider any intervention there necessary, and he only joined the Allied endeavour to satisfy a practical need for Allied unity. So, does the idea of Allied unity help explain Wilson's actions and his decision to send soldiers into Russia? In my view, not completely. The historian David McFadden opined that Wilson permitted American forces to stay behind in Russia after the armistice for three key reasons. First, to aid the anti-Bolshevik forces. Second, to prevent the Japanese from gaining control of eastern Siberia and northern Manchuria. And three, to let the Paris Peace Conference make a final decision on the Russian question. A simple fact of the era was that if Allied forces were not present in Russia and didn't possess some kind of leverage, they would not be able to determine the fate of Russia in the Paris Peace Conference. Wilson first passionately believed and then hoped against hope that the Bolsheviks would be cast aside, but he appreciated that unless the Allies had some boots on the ground, however unpalatable and impractical this might seem, none of their decisions would have any weight. That, of course, assumed that decisions of some kind could be made, which was not at all clear by spring 1919, where Russia was concerned. In the British case, it is also worth considering the possibility that simple economic interests drove Lloyd George's government to intervene in Siberia, and that the empire's material and strategic interests compelled them to hold on to the Caucasian theatres to protect their interests in Asia and India, and also led British policymakers to favour the creation in the end of a weak red Russia rather than a strong white one. A final consideration in this debate, and one which is often overlooked when attempting to find the more conclusive answer, is that less exciting explanations in isolation or combined can help answer the question of why Anglo-American forces and others stayed behind in Russia. What I mean by this is the following. First of all, since the Allies had soldiers in Russia already, it was safer politically to do nothing since the left would have been outraged at Lloyd George if he had upped the ante in Russia, while the right, led in this case by Winston Churchill, or at least in the British case by Winston Churchill, would have been furious to see Britain pull out of Russia. The situation was broadly similar in the United States, where one looked they could find factions arguing on the one side for the Allies to keep hands off Russia, as the slogan went, while other sources published horror stories about the Bolshevik excesses and urged action yesterday. So the Allies had sent forces into Russia and didn't really do anything with those forces because it suited them politically at home. 
But a second point that we must remember is that Russia was one issue among a sea of others, and that when apportioning time and attention to this long list, matters which seemed distant or static were often relegated to the bottom of the list. Russia suffered this fate several times, and even when it came up for discussion on the first day of the Supreme War Council, on the 12th of January, on the 15th of February, and again on the 25th of February, nothing of substance was ever decided upon because no Allied consensus could be found. As Churchill's confidence surge demonstrated, many other Allied leaders, including Clemenceau, would have relished the chance to properly invade Russia and destroy Bolshevism, but they had instead chosen to fall in line with the President and Prime Minister, for the sake of Allied unity, just as Wilson had partially decided to send American soldiers to Russia for the sake of Allied unity in the first place. This Allied unity was a vital resource for the likes of Clemenceau and Orlando, who relied upon the decisions of the Allies when it came to things that they truly cared about, like reshaping Germany, reparations, or those tasty morsels which Italy had been promised. So long as the Allied support for a given scheme was conditional, apathetic and prone to changing with the wind or latest news, it was highly unlikely that a new scheme for solving the Russian problem would ever emerge. With the failure of Prinkipo to mobilise the Russians sufficiently, the Russian question was delayed until the 19th of February, and while on his way to discuss this question, Clemenceau was infamously shot at by a crazed anarchist. Subsequent discussions of Russia were put on the back burner, but two important developments were underway, which would, it was hoped, break this deadlock. The first was forming in the mind of Alexander Kolchak, by far the strongest anti-Bolshevik force in play, based in the Siberian city of Omsk. Kolchak planned for a new offensive, which would kick off on the 13th of March, and which would surely draw additional Allied soldiers into the fray, thereby cutting off the Bolsheviks and strangling their wretched ideology in its cradle. The second development was less ominous and germinated in the mind of Edward House, who sought participants for a secret delegation to be sent to Russia, with the core aim of finding information about the situation there, an essential task if there ever was one. A man selected to lead this mission was William Bullitt, and in spite of the relatively unambitious aims which were attached to this plan, William Bullitt's mission soon took on a life of its own. At least, it did in the mind of William Bullitt, who came to believe that he was being sent to Russia to craft a peace settlement in the name of the Anglo-Americans. Where everyone else had failed, William Bullitt believed that he would succeed, and his contemporaries seemed either too busy or too disinterested to take the time to bring him back down to earth. <laughs> 